episode 52 of the Bowery Boys, DeWitt Clinton and the Erie Canal. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And mine is Tom Myers. And I guess we're going to, in our continuing series on the canals of New York City... Because we can't get enough of them. This wasn't even planned that way, but just it fell in the calendar this way. The biography of DeWitt Clinton, one of the most influential New Yorkers, and the thing that basically he helped create, helped come about because of him, which was the Erie canal and that really helped create new york city as a metropolis it transformed the local economy it transformed really the young nation's economy and as for clinton himself he was an incredible human being he spent most of his life in the civic service in public service and you could also call a lot of this nepotism and you know just constant campaigning very ambitious one of the most ambitious new yorkers have ever lived he was mayor of new york three separate occasions he was also governor of new york a state senator, a U.S. senator. And then a lot of other things in between, including, you know, a, a writer. He was an intellectual. He helped promote the cultural growth of the city. And he left behind a Clinton legacy in New York State. <laughs> I know, maybe a little bit deja vu. And, you know, many of the supporting characters in this uh, podcast are... The greatest of the founding fathers and some of the second tier founding fathers, if you will, the uh, the chorus line, <laughs> <laughs> the chorus line of fathers. <laughs> so sit back and enjoy the show. And even if you've never heard anything about DeWitt Clinton, we're about to tell you why you should know this man. Let's go. All right, Greg. Now, before we jump into the political triumphs and pratfalls of Governor, Mayor, Senator Clinton, why don't you take us back and uh, tell us from whence he came? How did he start? Where did he hatch from? Um, he was born on March 2nd of 1769 in a city called Little Britain, New York. It's a good TV show, too, Little Britain. Right. right uh, sure. Little Britain, New York, from from 1769, and he actually died in the year 1828 at 58 years old. He grew up in the premier family of New York in much the same way that, say, if you were an Adams in Massachusetts mm-hmm. at this time, or say you were a Bush in Texas. At like, this time? Not at this time, but in another time. This was the reigning family of the state, the Clintons. And his father was James Clinton, who was a major general in the American Revolution. He fought in many of the northern campaigns, uh, including the Battle of Newton, which is one of the more famous battles that happened in the northern part of the country. And he was in the, obviously in the War of Independence, but also in the French and Indian War. Yes, before that, correct. So he was a famous general by this time, as was his uncle, uh-huh. who will come up a few times in this podcast, and his name is George Clinton. Not the funkster, but <laughs> um, probably one of New York's most influential governors that they ever had. Uh, the governor of New York from 1777 to 1795. So he became governor when little... DeWitt was just eight years old. Correct. Yes. So, I mean, he's 
this young lad have, has had these influential men in his life. As we may mention a little bit later, uh, George would be vice president to both Thomas Jefferson and James Madison back in the day when they could right. do those types of things. You know, he opposed ratification of the, of the Constitution. It was, he was really afraid it would neuter the power of the states. And, you know, considering he was a governor of one of the most powerful states, it's not a surprise that this was his philosophy. So he was an anti-federalist. Correct, an anti-federalist. We'll, we'll mention in a few minutes what he actually was, which was a Republican. I'm already confused. <laughs> but So he grows up a little, and it's assumed that he will go to Princeton because at the time, well, King's College had been shut down during the Revolution. Of course, he's growing up in 1770s New York, which is just fascinating. Rather volatile. Volatile place. As luck would have it, just as he's of age, King's College is rechartered as Columbia University, and he is enrolled in its very first class as, as Columbia, Columbia wow. right in 1784. It was a small class, but they, you know, he was schooled in philosophy and arts and sciences and letters and all of the letters. All the letters. <laughs> all the letters. And he did very well. He wrote to his family. His family was actually a little bit nervous that maybe he was studying too hard. You know, they were wondering when was he going to go out and kind of enjoy the town a little. But he didn't enjoy the town until his graduation day when he graduated first in his class. First of the first class of Columbia University. In 1786. And because in 1786, New York was the nation's capital and Congress was, you know, downtown on Wall Street, they honored this first class of Columbia mm -hmm. by attending. Congress and the president attended the graduation, and little DeWitt Clinton, well, he wasn't so little at this point, gave his, you know, first major speech, his valedictorian speech, to a joint session, basically, of Congress and to the president <laughs> in Latin. In Latin. Yes. <laughs> I mean, wow, that they usually have, you know, president speaking to the graduates this was like the opposite right but you can imagine what this would do for dewitt's ego i mean maybe <laughs> yes. th this would really be a stirring moment in your life and maybe well it obviously put him immediately into contact by this point his uncle was the governor of new york state they all too, knew so. who he was all yeah. of them he was a known figure and here he was there's dewitt speaking in latin to so the entire so George, George, John, the entire cabinet featuring Alexander. They were, they were there. The whole cabinet. I mean, the, all the Congress. That's, that's amazing. Nerve-wracking, but I'm sure he got through it, being that he was DeWitt. Right. And maybe nobody else actually understood what he was saying, but they nodded appreciatively. <laughs> oh, right. It was in Latin. So what did he do after college? Well, he decided that he would get into politics and, well, into the law and then get into politics. So he studied law with a lawyer in the city and passed the bar in 1788. Now, he doesn't really have a very long history as just a, a regular lawyer well, all in the, the city. All, right. All of the political positions start happening pretty soon, right? right? He actually wanted to get out of town, go back home, you know, maybe out to Little Britain or to a nice, quiet city. A sure. little town close to his family um, and set up a law firm and be happy. But that wasn't in the cards for him because his uncle was governor and had great political aspirations for DeWitt. At this time, I should maybe define a little bit what he and George were in the political spectrum they were. Um, George, his uncle. George. George. Uncle George and right. DeWitt. You know, they were Republicans at the time. Now, this is a very different phrase than it is today. 
1790, the, the names that would be most associated with republicanism would be like Thomas Jefferson, right. for instance. As you'd mentioned, they opposed the Federalist and they, you know, opposed the presidency of John Adams in particular a little bit later. They were all about individual rights as the core issue, anti-aristocracy and a strong federal government. They often aligned with France in situations. Um, and so then they were anti-federalists. Anti-federalists, correct. Um, by the way, the these Republicans then – I'm not going to just lay it out for you on a piece of paper here. But Republicans then became what we call the Democratic Republicans, which would then become Democrats, which aren't even the same as the Democrats today, but are the same party name. Just – you know, just follow them. Just, follow just this. nod your head. Yeah. So that's why we sometimes see the Democratic Republicans – and those would be the same as the Republicans, which were anti-federalists. And later Democrats. <laughs> which are not today's Who's Democrats. on first? <laughs> um, anyway, so he would use some of the, this, uh, his political passion, young like political fire, feistiness, if you will, and would write some letters into the newspaper you know, while the, back, back when the Constitution was being debated. So it was a little bit before this time. He actually wrote a series of letters that appeared in the papers signed – a countryman. And these were intended to counter the series of letters that were appearing by the Federalists, correct? The Federalist papers at this time were out in a series of letters that were being written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay. And so the countryman letters were basically in response to these Federalist ideals that were being argued about in the paper. Everyone did this all the time. As a matter of fact, it's even rumored that Uncle George himself also wrote letters at this time and signed it under the name Cato. Uh-huh. Let's just say that these these countryman letters, uh -huh. in the letters, DeWitt pretends to be just a normal salt-of-the-earth farmer who has been right. swindled um, basically by everything that the, that the Federalists are proposing. And by a strong national government, he gets swindled out of a bunch of money and his cattle. So that, <laughs> oh, th th so that was in made, one of the letters. He even made up some fake cattle that got swindled. Yeah, personality and some cattle. Well, it's unfortunate because they're, they're very well-written letters, but his whole idea is got crushed by the fact that he's arguing against some of the most non-official documents ever written in America's history. Right. Today, you can go to Barnes & Noble and pick up the Federalist paper. You, the you're going to have a hard time finding a countryman. <laughs> the countryman papers, unfortunately, you won't be able to find. But, you know, he they were out there. There was a dissenting voice. So... You know, so this passion then eventually led to some political positions in his life. Yeah, well, he was out of school. He was now a lawyer, and he was looking for a job. And what do you know? His uncle was governor of the state. Surprise. So he was appointed to be the private secretary to the governor. And this was a position that he served from 1790 to 1795, which would really introduce him to the major powers that be at the state level and also in the Republican Party. I can't help but think that there would be some charges of nepotism or some <laughs> ill will. You think? I mean, especially as he was sort of the loudest shill of his uncle's policies. He was the one out there that was right. saying that these, you know, we should believe in these. These are what we should be doing. Um, but yeah, he, was, he was sort of the Scott McClellan of his <laughs> uncle's administration. He was the, you know, the, the face to the press. Right. If McClellan's uncle was the president. But we can say that he learned the ropes at this, during this period. And in 1795 now, his uncle 
retired from his post as governor, but DeWitt continued to argue in different forums the Republican cause. But Greg, let's please fast forward because he's not even mayor yet. He's a private secretary or he's just resigned. Now he goes to the state Senate. We have a lot of different positions to push through here. He's a so. foul, he's he's got he has so many jobs. I'm surprised he was able to keep him through on his own resume. His resume is I'm like I'm sure it was more than one page. It was probably a, a few pages. All right, are you ready for a quick run through here? Yes. Because right after that he was in the state assembly and then he was in the state senate. All right. So and then it was around this time that he was also part of something very interesting. Well, it was it was something that you could actually be a part of. A, a governmental post that you could also do a, other jobs at the same time, and it was called the Council of Appointments. Mm-hmm. Sounds and important. It actually is. It's a very interesting period of this. It was a, it's forgotten today, but at the time it was actually the most important state political body. And just as the name says, the Council of Appointments. What they did is they made all the appointments. It was for state senators and the governor. Uh, they made yearly appointments for almost all the municipal jobs. So they, and you're not talking about like 3.15 on Tuesday. You're talking about appointments like who has which position. Who is going to be in that job? They decided it. Like it's It was just their responsibility to appoint the mayors, including the mayor of New York. They weren't elected? No, they were not elected. They were appointed by this council. They also appointed the state attorney general, the secretary of state, they appointed judges, they appointed sheriffs, dozens and dozens of jobs. It created so much chaos because every year all these new appointments had to be made. So you're always trying to curry favor with these individuals. And of course, the people on the board uh, would recycle also. So, I mean, this happened until 1822 when the state constitution was changed. And at that date on 1822, they were actually assigning almost up to 15,000 different jobs a year. I mean, it's, it's, it was that unwieldy. A big mess. But Clinton was only on this committee for how many years? For about four years. But this is a very, very uh, crucial because he would actually be – he would then have some jobs later, including mayor, that would be appointed by this council of appointments that he had just been on. Right. No conflict there. No. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So he was also in the state Senate where he passed laws to promote agriculture and 
bolster the defense, abolish slavery, and even promote the arts. Again, getting back to his sort of humanitarian base. He was applying that to his, his legislation. Yeah. He was concerned with politics, but he also had these lofty ideals about public health, the arts, engineering, mm -hmm. and very interestingly, too, about raising America's cultural status. He had this, you know, as he was a member of um, a prominent New York and American family, he was also on the world stage. And right. he was very aware of the fact that in the early 1800s, the U.S. didn't really have a very impressive reputation, culturally speaking, on the world stage. Well, yeah, I mean, every other European country has hundreds and hundreds of years of history, they being so new. Or more, right. yes. Many families were just a couple generations, if that, in the, U in the U.S., and so the cultural institutions were pretty much non-existent. While he was in the state senate, he was passing laws to, to start these up. Then in 1802, he would join the U.S. Senate. Oh, the big Senate. The big Senate. And he would only hold this position for one year because then he would be appointed mayor. And that was okay with him, too, because being a New Yorker and being something of a cultural snob about all of the things that New York City offered, he hated the idea of going to this cultural backwater. Well, and it, cultural back. It was a literal backwater. I don't know if... If any of you out there have seen um, the miniseries John Adams, I think they do a brilliant job of, of visualizing what a swampland Washington, D.C. was at this time. It was filthy. It mm. was disgusting. It was still being built at this time. So he being an, an upper-class New Yorker of privilege, he just didn't like it. And he was also depressed when they bartered the agreement to ship the Congress and the federal government down to D.C., he was depressed and wrote to his uncle, the governor right. at the time, about oh, what does this mean for New York City to lose all of the federal power? He just know? didn't like. He just didn't like the idea from the uh, from the outset. So he thought it would be embarrassing for the for the country. So then he got appointed mayor of New York. He had three different tenures: eighteen o three to o seven, eighteen o eight to ten, and then eighteen eleven to eighteen fifteen. Wait a um, second. So from wait. basically from eighteen o three to eighteen fifteen. Yes, I mean, there was with some short intervals in between where someone else was appointed for various reasons. But what he did while he was mayor of New York, he innovated many systems that have become familiar to New York. Now, a lot of this isn't good stuff necessarily. For instance, he, a lot of his early criticism on the job was that he was a sort of a purveyor of the crony system. It really sounds obvious now, but, you know, he lies in the continuum between the sort of like pure ambitions of the founding fathers and on the other end, this like absolute favoritism and corruption of Tammany Hall and right. Boss Tweed. So here you have him in the middle where you know he's openly sweeping away his political enemies and then bringing in people that he knows will work for him. And this is actually kind of a weird modern concept for, at, at the time. Some of the things he was known for doing, though, as mayor, I mean, he was a great mayor and the people really did love him. A lot of the things that he supported were great innovations in public education. He pushed for an abolition of slavery in New York City. He ended debtors' imprisonment, mm -hmm. which was a big issue then. Encouraged agriculture and sort of in general cleaned up the city. I mean, one thing that he really wanted to do was create a civic character. And so some of the things that he was, he was doing on the legislative side, he would do here on the city level 
with these endeavor, the arts with these and... endeavors of arts and sciences. And so one of the most important things that he did that he still lives with us today was with the establishment of the New York Historical Society in 1804. He served as the first president. The first meeting was he and 10 other prominent citizens, and they actually met in the old city hall. Uh-huh. Their job was to collect New York artifacts, quote, from the dust and obscurity of private repositories. And they did this because without collecting this and without starting to gel a history, they would, quote, devolve into well-combined series of ingenious conjectures and amusing fables without these artifacts. So it was important for them. And it was the early... I hope we don't devolve into an amusing fable. <laughs> But we, or we, evolve into an amusing fable. Well, hopefully, we'll be in the historical society soon. You know, by the way, the you know the current historical society is up on the Upper West Side, and right. they are still with us. Several other of the cultural institutions that Dewitt helped found as mayor are no longer with us. Different philosophical societies and lecturing societies. One of the reasons that they're no longer with us is because the city granted free space to these cultural institutions back in the day. Oh, yes. By converting some of the old almshouses into museums. Seems rather controversial, but... Um, <laughs> well, we, ment- we mentioned a little bit of this in our Barnum's American Museum podcast. Was one of the early incarnations had actually gotten one of these donated floors before, of course, they brought in freaks and animals. DeWitt was also a huge proponent of what would later be called the Commissioner's Plan of 1811. You know, he didn't help plan it, but having him behind it sort of helped push it into prominence and actually had it executed. This was, of course the creation of the grid system of Manhattan from mm-hmm. 14th Street up to Washington Heights. And the sort of orderly streets that we have today uh, traces back from 1811. And it's this incredible, visionary, unbelievable idea that they did this so long ago, planning a city that was not even that big. I mean, they were planning it to go all the way, fill up the whole island back in the time when it didn't even fill up a fourth of it. Right. He was always thinking of New York as a growing metropolis. Of course, the grid system is controversial because some would say it was short-sighted in its lack of space provided for gardens and public spaces. Well, and as a matter of fact, Central Park is is not on the original grid at all. Right. As a matter of some of the original... The original grid looks terrifying. Oh, thank you. I mean, you have to really thank Central Park because it's it breaks up just sort of blocks and blocks of streets. But, but they did have some parkland. During this period, he was also... You know, he wasn't busy enough. Um, he also served as a state senator from 1805 to 1811 and also as a lieutenant governor from 1811 to 1813. Right, right. Now, in the middle of all of this, Greg, in 1812, while he's mayor of New York City and lieutenant governor of New York State, mm-hmm. he also runs for president of the United States. Sure, with your spare time. In a nutshell, let's say that James Madison was president and running for a second term, but the New York Republicans wanted to break up this Virginia dynasty, the so-called Virginia dynasty. So they nominated Clinton for president. Now, he couldn't win on just the New York Republicans alone. Mm -hmm. So the Federalists from 11 states came to New York and they agreed to support Clinton. Mm -hmm. So you have the Federalists, who used to be the Republicans' enemies, getting in bed with the New York Republicans. This created lots of... Strange bad fellows. 
Exactly, and some hard feelings and some unease. Anyway, Madison won 128 electoral votes, Clinton only 89, so it was kind of an embarrassing defeat. The Republicans were not impressed by his performance because they thought that he had become a little too right. soft you know, with, with the Federalists. And his reaction, because he, they basically took away his position as lieutenant governor, and he said, fine, I'm going to just devote myself to being mayor of New York City. I should mention how bizarre it is, by the way, that he was running for president when the vice president of James Madison happened to be his uncle. <laughs> of course. But, then the, but uh, George wasn't going to be the vice president for Madison's second term, so it wasn't some weird, mind-blowing conflict of interest. And it didn't necessarily mean that they got along. No, you're right. Very true. So the presidential election was 1812. Let's just pull back a year. During his mayoralty, you know, as you already pointed out, DeWitt Clinton looked at New York City, the undeveloped and unchartered territories, right. And he saw potential, which is obviously why he laid out this grid system. How was New York going to get to this? It was going to get there by a huge influx of commerce and, into its economy. Right. And this would come about with the Erie Canal. Oh, right. I forgot we were talking about a canal. Right. Remember, we're getting to that at some point. Well, we're here. We got to it. Um, you know, there, the idea that of, of a canal that would connect the Hudson River to the more interior bodies of water of, of the western United States had actually been bandied about f for a long time. There had been a lot of failed proposals. As a matter of fact, in 1793, the, shall we say, flamboyant Governor Morris, mm. uh, one of our earliest, most contra more controversial American patriots, had actually expressed enthusiasm and had even chartered voyages to sort of inspect the river and, and just formulate some ideas. But unfortunately, they were way too expensive. How exactly would the canal lead to greater commerce? Well, it would because it would create um, a, a, a to and to and fro of shipping between the Atlantic Ocean and the interior of the United States. And, you know, it would just be so expensive and time-consuming, say, for a, sh a British ship or a French ship to go all the way around the United States and then go up the Mississippi River, which, is, which was one method of doing mm -hmm. it, they would, or other southerly ways that were just... Two, uh, it would just take forever. So all of these goods, the the salt, the flour, textiles, all these different things took very long to get inside as the country was moving west. Which and is as this, was right. So this is this is why people wanted this canal. President Thomas Jefferson had sort of provisionally agreed to sort of help fund this idea. He did think it was a good idea. The New York Legislature forms an exploratory committee that had Clinton at the head of it and our friend Governor. Mm -hmm. was also uh, there. They voyaged down the Mohawk and they took notes exploring the area and the possibility of this. The Mohawk River is what separates the Catskills and the Adirondacks. So this is why this was sort of a perfect place for this canal. However, once it was sort of realized how expensive it would be, the U.S. government kind of pulled out. By this time, it was um, 1812. The, our nation would soon get into a certain war of 1812. They were way too distracted in this. And also, there was... I've also read some accounts of, like, other states being a little jealous. Like, they didn't want New York to have this sort of greater power, to have everything filtered through New York. They saw the future, essentially. Mm. So Clinton managed to 
start by convincing very prominent men and the New York elite to donate money to this project because they all knew that this was going to help them out in the long run. He was pouring so much energy into this. In 1815, he was actually removed from his duties as mayor due to some sort of political entanglements. But even though he lost his position as mayor, he still was adamant about pushing the canal. And his passion for it sort of spread to the population, so much so that in 1817, he has his final and most powerful job, I guess you could say, as the, as the governor of New York. And his first term started in 1817. Incredibly, it was that very year that he actually convinced the New York legislature to give $7 million to this project. They were going to build this themselves. They didn't mm. need anybody else. So on July 4th, 1817, Governor Clinton, then Governor Clinton, breaks the ground for the canal. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. There was, you know, controversies swirling about. And two years later, when he was reelected governor in 1819, it was by a smaller margin. So his popularity was sinking a little as he became obsessed with the planning of the canal. So maybe he was his own worst enemy, if you could look at it a certain way. Well, in 1822, he didn't seek a third term as the governor. And in 1824, however, now his enemies, who we've been talking about, which by this point also included Tammany Hall and other powerful politicians, removed him from the Canal Commission, Uh uh, which was seen really as an extreme measure. I mean, he was now not anything. He wasn't governor. He wasn't on the Canal Commission. He was just DeWitt. But it was the next year that the canal opens, correct? And so this groundswell of support me, it was because of him. Right. It was because of him and removing him from the commission completely backfired and his popularity was bolstered and he was elected governor again in 1826 by a huge margin of 16,000 votes and served as governor from 1826 until he died in 1828. Now that Sorry to just bring it abruptly to the end there, but it isn't over because the canal did open before he died. And it it did everything that they promised it would. It would have these shorter times for shippers, which meant a lower cost of items even that were being shipped. So people could actually spend more money on more things. Toll money was also made on the canal. They actually saved so much money in reserve from, from the tolls that... When the Great Fire happened in 1835 that basically gutted all of New York downtown, mm-hmm. they could use this reserve money to help rebuild the city. And it sped up also the delivery of items. Well, manufacturers even chose, they all chose to ship through New York uh, versus going south. So because of this, it solidified New York as the financial capital of the new nation. It created a host of millionaires, you know, right. people who had invested in this. Well, the import-export business would naturally be based here or in the ports in Lake Erie because the canal would wander up the Hudson and then cross over to Lake Erie. And then what would stem from all of this would then be the innovations like the railroad because many of the men who would make their fortunes here would then go on and build on them even more, become moguls. And it wasn't all just about goods either because this would transform transportation. Americans from the East Coast and Europeans coming over to the U.S. would now be able to float up the canal and into Lake Erie and start to explore parts of the country that they had never really had access to before. And DeWitt Clinton himself on October 1825 would take part in a ceremony which allowed for the first time the waters of Lake Erie to be placed into the Hudson Bay. He sailed in the Seneca Chief, 
a packed boat from Lake Erie to the Hudson, and he emptied two barrels into New York Harbor to great fanfare. For the remainder of Clinton's career, then, he would be, he would be the governor of New York and sort of lifted on the public's shoulders. You can summarize his legacy by just saying he was loved by the people by, but hated by many, many politicians because he was perceived as being arrogant and stubborn. But a lot of the stubbornness is what pushed a lot of these things that we benefit from today. Mm. So, you know, maybe he was an unpleasant person to know. I don't really know. But, you know, we can thank him for for being here. As a matter of fact, I have this amazing quote, which I think summarizes DeWitt Clinton for you, from an article that I read in the City Journal. If DeWitt Clinton had never lived, you probably wouldn't be living here because New York would not have attracted you or your ancestors. So true. So in 1828, he actually, believe it or not, was planning another run for president, but he actually died still in the office of governor on February 11th. But the city and the state that he left behind was vastly transformed from the one that he grew up in. From the financial fortunes of the city to the actual makeup of the city, both its geographical and cultural identities. So cheers to DeWitt Clinton, the original New York Clinton legacy. <laughs> Not the, the last Clinton legacy through New York. So thank you very much for listening. You can join us online at BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where Greg will be posting, I'm sure, some illustrations of the canal and other things to inspect. Thank you for listening. I'm, sh- I'm sure most of you have gotten this on iTunes, though we are also available on other podcasting places. If you are on iTunes and you like the show, go on there and write a, a little two-sentence review. That, we, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. And it's summertime, so Greg and I are taking next week off, but we'll be back in two weeks. So we'll see you then. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Bye.